Welcome to Hallel Fellowship, found on the internet at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. We hope you are encouraged by the following recorded Bible study to look deeper into every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and how they were lived out in the life of Yeshua HaMashiach, often called Jesus the Christ. Now, Shemot covers Exodus chapter 1, goes through chapter 5, and then picks up also into the uh, first part of chapter 6. And then we also looked at passages in Isaiah 27 and 28, and Jeremiah chapter 1, and also picked up passages in Acts chapter 7 and Hebrews chapter 11. And you can see all the, the studies we've done on this particular passage at uh, halal.info slash p13. So there's a lot of territory that's covered in these particular chapters. And you've seen in the passages that we looked at in Acts 7 and Hebrews chapter 11 that they factor in hugely importantly in the whole story of the people of God. And as we get around to Passover time, that's another time when we emphasize this particular passage starting in Exodus 1 and going on for several chapters up through chapter 13 and even into 15 with the crossing of the sea. Because this is a passage that we all have gone through. And as we will see, this is a situation that we all have experienced in crying out to God for deliverance. And it's something that we'll see is something that is a condition in the day of the Lord. We see in the book of Revelation when it talks about between those who have the seal of God in their forehead and those which have received the mark of the beast in their hand or their forehead. And one of the things that we see in the prophets that is reflected in picked up in the book of Revelation is that the seal of God is put on the foreheads of those in the city of God who do what? Weep and cry about the situation and the condition that the city of God has descended into. That place that was founded on what we're, we've just read here today, that God remembered the condition of Israel, heard the cries of the oppression, and then decided to act, and act with such a way to make a display. And as we'll see in, in the passages that follow, that the plagues were meant as a display, not just to Mitzrayim, Egypt, but the entire world of who really is in charge. And this would be a sign that would go to not only Mitzrayim, but also to Canaan, to all of those nations that Israel would face and all of them that would be around Israel over time, that who was actually in charge. And you'll see that the Exodus, as we, we go on and we go through these passages about the plagues, they show up in the prophets and they show up in the book of Revelation. Why do they show up there? For the same reason they show up in the prophets. It is a message as much to the people of God as it is to the nations. 
Remember who delivered you out, who gave you the land, who gave you the status before God as the people of God, not just because of how great you are, but actually in spite of how great you think you are, how beautiful you think you are. So those are some of the topics that we're going to be taking a look at here today. Now, some of the the signposts that we have in the book of Shemot, the book of Exodus, is that it is a book that talks about reconciliation of Israel to God. So that is why Passover factors in so mightily. And there's no coincidence between why you have the crucifixion and the resurrection centered around Passover. Because just as the meaning that it had at the time period that we're reading about here today, so too it factors in the time period that the Gospels are focusing on. Because the Gospels are talking about what? The kingdom of God coming in with power. And the visitation of the kingdom of God inst among the, amongst the people. Just like you see a small taste of that at the burning bush, that's the presence of God, that the people of God are actually standing on holy ground. Well, we'll see a full taste of that when you have the word of God made flesh, then bringing that presence in amongst the people. So this is a reconciliation. The people of the people of God being reconciled to God. And that, and very importantly, that the Lord remembers his promises. He hears the lamentations of the people of God and ultimately responds to them. Because one of the things you see in the book of Revelation, there is a vision given of the altar, the altar in the throne room of God. And you get this vision of it talks about the saints underneath the altar, and they're crying out, how long, how long, O Lord, are you going to let this go on? And he says, what? Sleep a little bit longer. Sleep a little bit longer. Don't worry about this. It will be fulfilled. So just like you see Havel or Abel's blood cries out from the ground, and it was definitely heard. The Lord heard about it. He didn't, even as if his name implies that he is just a wisp, a wind that just kind of blew into existence and blew out of existence. No, the Lord actually knew about what was happening and what had happened. His blood cried out from the ground. The voices of the martyrs were crying out from under the altar. And as we get into the book of Leviticus, we see that that altar of incense right before the, the veil that separates the holy place and the most holy place where the presence of God is, that that is emblematic of the prayers of the saints always going up, that altar of incense always going up. So the Lord remembers, the Lord promises, the Lord fulfills and ultimately responds. So that when we see in the prophets, there's all kinds of these prophecies. I promise to do this. We read about them today in the, in the prophet Isaiah and Jeremiah. Promises, 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 promises. 
this is not like some sort of alternate reality where, oh, well, this might have happened. No, the Lord promises this is going to happen. Do you believe me or not? This, was, this is why we keep seeing this repeated again and again and again. I am the God of whom? Avraham, I am the God of whom? Yitzhak, I am the God of whom? Yaakov, promises made to every single one of them, promises that are repeated and confirmed and carried forward to each single one of them. And the key one to Avraham was that through all of the world, they would be blessed because of what would come through him. Through Avraham, all of the world would be blessed. And that seed of the woman was going to come down through Avraham into all of the world, and all of the world would be blessed. Because, you know, the Apostle Peter reminds us in Second Peter 3, verses 8 through 9, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And that's something and that's and that's and that's something that we we see um, going on as a message uh, throughout all of the Bible. So, one of the things that we see is that the Messiah is also reconciling the world to heaven as well, no longer recognizing sins, transgressions, and iniquities. And finally, that the redeemed or the adopted of Israel are heaven's ambassadors in the reconciliation of the world. We cannot be like that, hey, send somebody else. We're not like Moshe saying, send somebody else. If somebody else needs to be sent, there will be someone that will come along to help. But all of us must go. All of us must go even if we are there <laughs> afraid, afraid. And that's something that we will see is a transformation in Moshe. So one of the key things we're going to take a look at today is that passage that we had seen there in Exodus uh, 3 and 4 in particular, where you have this comment that is made by one of the people that Moshe was, he was the savior. He's coming in to save them. And one of them says to him, well, who made you a prince or a judge over us? So one of the things we see throughout Moshe's life is a journey from precious, you know, beautiful Tov, to a prince, to a pariah, <laughs> to then a plague-proclaiming prophet. And that is a transformation that happens throughout him. And one of the things that we see in the day of the Lord is that Israel's cries for deliverance or a foreshadow of the mark of the beast versus the seal of God in this, because the same condition that will be happening on the day of the Lord is a condition that we face now. Are we ones who weep and cry for what is going on in the world? I mean, we are praying here today for our leaders 
the leaders of our nation, the leaders of our state. We're praying for them, that they would hear the words of the Lord. Are we concerned about the things that are happening, about what is going into the minds and the ears and the eyes of the children? Are we concerned about that? Crying out to the Lord, the one who can truly change hearts. Because we can blah, 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 blah all day long. But those who are hardened, and we'll be seeing that in our next Torah reading, that those who are hardened, strengthened, will be strengthened further and cemented further into the darkness of their hearts. Uh, yes, Alex, uh, go ahead, please. Uh, that, that murder scene is just every man for himself. <laughs> I mean, Pharaoh wouldn't even uh, defend his, his daughter's, was that his daughter's son, right? Or whoever Moshe was. Yeah. And so. it's every man for themselves. I mean, it was just, you know, there's there's no justice anywhere there, and all most just run, man, because <laughs> your own people don't care, don't even recognize you, yeah. even though you were kind of helping them out. Yeah. So uh, it was it was it was broken at that point. Well, you, you you bring up a very interesting point because when you talk about things being broken at that point, uh, just rewinding the clock a little bit um, and taking a look at this from a historical standpoint. Uh, one of the key aspects is that, you know, here we are down in Egypt, but one of the things that um, comes a very interesting thing in Egypt's history when you read about it is that there are different dynasties, or if we were in the Queen's English, dynasties, but there were different time periods in Egypt's history where you've got this back and forth fighting and some of the things that's come down in more modern times with looking at this is that the dynasties were not all successive because that's where you sometimes will get these time frames for Egypt's history into the thousands of years because they used to stack them one after the other after the other. You think like a dynasty. This dynasty ruled, then this one ruled, and then that one ruled, and it just was successive. Well, what they've come to determine is, no, it wasn't successive. It was a number of times concurrent, where you had these dynasties ruling in different areas of Egypt. You had some of them in what you call Upper Egypt, which you know to us, we always think up is north, but in uh, the geography of Egypt, actually got to see the beginning of the Nile. Isn't that fantastic there at Lake Victoria? So it flows from south to north. So Upper Egypt is at the southern, southern end of Egypt, and Egypt's rule, again, it goes off this map here down into modern-day um, Eritrea and Somalia, uh, but this was a empire that ruled a good portion of the Nile, and you say, why is that? Well, during the period of British colonial rule, you could see why it was important to rule up that river. Because if you control the river, what do you control? Commerce. Commerce, life. You control life because that river floods periodically and then the whole delta area becomes a gigantic fan, kind of like the San Francisco, uh, San Francisco, Sacramento Delta today is to where the river comes down from the mountains carrying the water and then fans out into all these sloughs and other rivers 
that then do what? We have one of the bread baskets of the world right in our backyard because of the delta. And the similar thing happens with the Nile is it goes down and it fans out. And they've archaeologically discovered supplementary canals. And we always think, hey, you know, the Suez Canal tonight. Well, there is ancient canals that go back and even have the fingerprints of a... <laughs> a ruler of Semitic origin over Egypt at a particular time period. So uh, that's one of those things that gets a little bit tricky in Egypt's history is that there was time periods where there were Semitic peoples. Um, they're often called Hyksos, which means, you know, the sea peoples that came in. Well, the thing is, is that um, some of those sea peoples are Semitic tangentially because uh, the same sort of people that ended up being uh, colonialists from <laughs> in Philistia, those were Greeks of a, of a sort. And in a sense, you sort of have a tangential, <laughs> a tangential flow from the Semitic influence that even flowed into Greece. So all this is said is that when it talks about this Pharaoh that did not know Joseph, that's because there are time periods in Israel's history where you indeed have periods where they are quite different kings, quite different kings of Mitzrayim. Yes, please go ahead. Yes, go, go, go ahead, please. Um, my question was, when you were saying on, on the previous slide about Israel, how, how did that read? Hmm? How does it read about Israel something Mark of the Beast? What was that previous oh, slide? I was just, uh, just was talking about the Israel's cries for deliverance that you see at the beginning part of this uh, chapter. There is a foreshadowing of the mark of the beast because at that particular time period, you see in the book of Revelation, it talks about those who have the seal of God on their forehead and then versus those who have the mark of the beast on their forehead or on their hand. So and my question is, sorry to interrupt, we would be, while we're listening to this, we are considered Israel as you're teaching. Yeah, the commonwealth of Israel. Right. Yes, okay. commonwealth. That's as so the Apostle Paul talks about that. not looking at some other, it's looking at us as yes. well. And when they talk about those who weep and cry within the uh, city of God, that is the, the greater city. Because you see that in... Um, talked about in the book of revelation where they keep re referring to the city you know where our lord was slain referred to also uh, prophetically as sodom so you are seeing this is not just talking about the city of jerusalem at that particular time period because that uh you could say spiritual condition infected more than just the people in a particular geographical city over time there's a whole lot more people involved. So historically, there was at least two paro, pharaoh powers that have ruled Egypt that were quite, quite different from each other. So just historically speaking, we know that there was entirely possible not only those that did not know, but did not want to know Joseph. So we see that 
When we closed out the book of Bereshit or Genesis, we met the Pharaoh who did know Yosef and not only knew him, but trusted him enough to basically turn over the keys of the country over to him to say, hey, run in my place. And as you know, Yosef explained to his brothers later, hey, I'm like a father to Pharaoh here. Because why? What are fathers for? Teaching, leadership, direction. So what was Pharaoh going to? Going to Yosef. For what? Leadership, wisdom, teaching, to get a, a sense as to what's going on. Because Yosef is saying, okay, you're facing the destruction of your country here. Uh, which way do you want to go? And your Pharaoh, and I've had a dream about it, and it looks bad. So here we have the one who's been, as it says, the spirit of God is within him that's going to show me how to get out of this. Do I trust this? Or do I say, ha, hogwash, I know what I'm doing. No. So what we see is that the Pharaoh that did know Joseph turned over the country to him to run it. And in the process, consolidated the power to, you know, that's what paro means. It means the great house. So, you know, we, we think of Pharaoh, oh, that's like a title. Well, strictly speaking, that's like the Egyptian equivalent of White House. So, you know, we, we, have, we even say it today, you know, the White House said this, the White House said that. Well, we know that this building is not talking. It's, you're talking about the powers, the people in charge that are in that building. So that the same thing came to be with Paro is being referring to the leadership. And thus, the, he's also, you see in there, described as the king of Mitzrayim, because that is what he was. But Paro came to be the great house is speaking. And this great house saw that there was someone greater. And we talked about that a couple of Torah passages ago, where Yaakov came in and blessed Paro. And we looked at the significance in the ancient world of someone getting a blessing and giving a blessing to someone else. And you see that reflected like in the book of Hebrews, it was talking about, well, who blesses whom? In the ancient world, the greater blesses the lesser. So thus, when you're seeing Paro, he is acknowledging, hey, Yaakov is greater. Why? Because he is the father of Yosef. He trusts Yosef. He trusts the Elohim of Yosef. Thus, he trusts the father of Yosef. And there is then the succession that Yosef is tapping into, the Elohim of Avraham, of Yitzhak, of Yaakov, who is now standing in front of him, blessing him. But... You see then, as we begin this section that we looked at today, that there was a paro who didn't know Yosef and then saw the fruitfulness, that they were fruitful and they multiplied and they were filling the land. It kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? It sounds like Genesis, the proclamation, hey, this is what you're supposed to do as the people of God to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Well, they were filling the land and instead of seeing this as a blessing like a previous great house saw 
The previous Paro saw this, hey, this is an incredible blessing that the one who is in charge of Yosef and giving him direction was now blessing this people. And that's a great thing for all of Egypt because Egypt is getting blessed because the people of Israel were getting blessed inside their borders. And that blessing was coming through. So this Paro, who didn't know Yosef, saw this blessing as a threat. And this king did not know Yosef's Elohim either, did not know Yosef's God. And you see the quotation there in Exodus 5.2. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And besides, you know, you can see it in there. It's like, also, uh, I will not let him go. So you could say, there is a number of ways that could be translated either besides or you know, therefore I won't let him go. So I, I do not, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and I do not know the Lord. Therefore I won't let him go. So clearly saying where his allegiance lies in this. So we see now backing up the little tape a little bit on Exodus two where this proclamation was, well, who made you a prince or a judge over us? So Moshe, as we saw at the description there in Exodus 2, 2, that he was, they saw that this child was, you might have various translations of it that say beautiful, wonderful child. Well, it's just strictly the Hebrew word tov. And Tov is a, a very interesting word in Hebrew because some people try to load it with meaning, saying, well, when you see Tov show up, that is a divine stamp of proclamation of something. No, because if you follow Tov through the Bible, you will see that some people did what was Tov in their right own eyes. And they, some people did things and they called it Tov. That is just saying that this is good from the perspective of what the person is looking at. So thus, when you say in Genesis chapter 1, that when he saw these things each day, creating, 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 what did he say? It's tov. And then finally, at the very end, with humans, tov meod, very good, great, greatly good. So with this... You have this great start. He was a good, beautiful child. So started out a beautiful child taken into the Pharaoh's daughter's house. Auspicious start. And one take that you have on this uh, Moshe's intervention between the two Hebrews there in Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15 was that he was seeking to use his own power to become judge. And we've seen this again and again. We've seen this in the life of Abraham with uh, trying to help God out there. Say, oh, I'm supposed to have a son. And through me, all the world will be blessed. Well, uh, I guess it's not getting done with Sarah here. So let, let me help God out. So then you have Hagar come in. And you see the Apostle Paul riffs on this in the book of Galatians, talking about, you know, the woman of the flesh 
and then the woman of the spirit, the, the mother of the flesh, and then the mother of the spirit. And that reflection of trying to help God out here or say, what is God's actual uh, direction and leading here? Uh, yes, Larry, go ahead, please. So, you know, the churches have taken that to mean a bad thing and a good thing, mm. but it doesn't really mean that. It means that <clears throat> it means that, that was the wrong way and that situation. It doesn't mean that the Torah is wrong. That's what they think. That the Torah was the late, was the child of the slave woman. Yes, the child, the child but of the slave. But it just means woman. that that was you know don't get in the Lord's way by trying to help. Yeah, and that's and that's what we 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 saw in you know we've been going through uh, Romans each week, and one of the things that we see is Romans is pretty universally considered to be the final draft of all of the Apostle Paul's letters, where you see that the themes that he develops in Galatians, Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians, that he takes all of these together and brings them into a final form and has a thorough argument from beginning to end in the letter to the Romans. And one of the things that we've seen as we've gone through Romans is that there was indeed this issue, and you see it in reflections of writings of, the, of around the first century, that there was this idea of that you work on the mitzvah, and that is work towards salvation, and the merits of Avraham, the merits of the elders, can work for you. So there was that particular idea. However, one of the things that Paul is uh, emphasizing, and you see it actually as we're going to go through the account of the Exodus, you see it again and again, is that the, the situation of the people as being helpless in their condition, they can do a lot, but they run up against the wall of what they can actually do in the whole realm of things. And that is one of the key things is entering into the kingdom of God. Because that's one of the things that you see, especially reflected in the uh, book of Isaiah, is that you have a priesthood that may be doing all of the right things that the Torah commands in the right order, but if their heart is not in it, forget about it. Yeah, the Lord sees right through it, sees right through the actions that, as correct as they may be, that the heart of the leaders is not in it. And you see a similar vision in the book of Ezekiel, where you see the prophet is <laughs> prophetically digs through the wall of the temple to see, okay, you may see what's going on, on the outside, but what's actually going on in the inside of the temple? And the inside of the temple is full of what? All kinds of idolatry idolatry in it so it's a good symbol that the heart of the people has idolatry in it even though on the outside it may look like hey the the house of god is in operation the open sign is on on the house of god but in the inside they put the closed sign on for all intents and purposes they're like ah, eh, we don't want to hear from this guy we 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 have other affections uh, other deities that we're have affections for so thus, we see that same thing. Now, the, the comparison of do we try to follow along with God's promises here or do we try to help out? 
And we see that in the lives of Avraham, Yitzhak, Yaakov, with the various efforts that they had tried, and even their family members, such as you see the mother of Yaakov tried to help, help out, tip the birthright in the direction that it should have gone anyway, really prophetically speaking. And it did go that way. But one of the key things is, well, what then happened in the process? And a lot of trust had to go into that equation. Yes. Oh, hold on just a moment. Sorry. Yes. We could also see that with the midwives. Yes. I mean, it's just human nature. And I know that these examples stand out glaringly. But when I think about, you know, a little interception or uh, human tampering, so to speak, the midwives, right? Like, they definitely did not do, God didn't direct them to do that. I'm glad, glad you I'm, asked. I'm glad you asked about that. <laughs> because that is what you say is a good precursor example of the typical thing. Well, um, the Ten Commandments says, do not bear false witness. So when the, this is called, uh, you know, argumentum ad absurdum, meaning you argue from the most uh, egregious level to show the plain point. So, no, I'm not saying, but I am going to do that. So, when the Nazis show up at your door and they say, do you have Jews in your house? What do you do? No, sir. That's the right answer. That is the right answer. Because one of the things is that the heart of the matter of bearing false witness is what? You are going after the life of the person you are testifying against. That's why the Torah also has a command later on that says, if you bear false witness against somebody, guess what? You're going to get the punishment that was going to go to the person you testified against. So thus, with the Nazis at your door example, which did happen, and people did just lie like crazy because that evil intent does not deserve honesty. And thus, you see the same thing with the midwives here. The evil intent of Pharaoh to destroy and to kill and to wipe out, that did not deserve following. And we see it later on. We talked about it uh, just a few weeks ago related to the apostles when they were brought before the Sanhedrin. And they said, stop preaching in the name of Yeshua. Stop preaching this name. Well, what do you do with that? Okay. All right. I guess we'll... I mean, there was an authority that, that talked to me, so I'm going to now uh, just acquiesce to it. So, no, it's like you say, we see um, a similar thing that, that comes through with Romans chapter 13, which as we've gone through the Roman study also, that's also commonly used. In fact, you'll see many Bibles will have a subtitle of that particular section of verses 1 through 7, which will say, uh, obedience to the authorities. And that's often quoted related to that. But 
One of the things that more modern scholars have seen is that if you were to take Romans as a coherent work and not the work of someone who is uh, of double-mindedness or triple-mindedness, that just was ad hoc grabbing, uh, grabbing topics and throwing them in there, what you see is Romans 13 is a coherent continuation of Romans 12 and all of the previous chapters before that. And how is the start even in Romans chapter 1? This is a discussion between those who know the law and those who are new to the law. How do you work together as a congregation, as those who are just new to the words of God and those who have grown up with it their entire life? and even have either their own set of halakha or traditions that go into how you practice it, or they've been handed down from generation to generation to generation, or from their favorite teacher that's told them, oh, this is, ha- this is how you need to interpret it. Well, how do you live together as a body of believers with those two separate groups of people in here? with long-held traditions on how things go, and those that have no tradition about it whatsoever, and not really a lot of big background on what the Bible has to say about it. How do you, how do you live together? And one of those, those things that you, you, you have to see and where that continuation of the thought goes is that when you have leadership of a congregation and they are... Um, giving direction on ways to go, um, it is good to at least follow along with that. If you're not going off of the path, you know, you, you go back to that thing that the, the apostles said to the Sanhedrin, you know, we have to follow God and not man. So if those instructions from an authority say, uh, you've got to veer off and do something else, you're like, no, we can't go that far. But if you are working together in a body of believers, hey, we as a body of believers, we need to kind of have ways that the whole congregation is going to work and at least approach each other. That's also where you get into the next chapter, Romans 14, which is about food and about fasting which if you take this as a coherent work, that it is following after Romans 13 and 12 and 10 and going all the way back to chapter one, you see that this is a conversation about, hey, you have some believers in there who come from traditions that we know about in the first century where they had different fast days. They had different sects of, you call them Judaisms at the time period. They weren't as firmly established as that, but there was different teachers that would provide different instructions, and they had different groups of fast days. We see an example of that in the um, the Greek work that's called the Didache, where they talk about a similar thing you see in the Gospels, about you have one group of people fast on these days of the week, and then another group of the people fast on these days of the week. Well, if you're in the same congregation, how do you get that to work? So Romans 13 is basically saying, hey, if you have a congregation and you're saying, uh, how do we want to approach kind of like fast days? Well, maybe you talk about it, you come together. But once you sort of are come to a decision on something that's not a 
thus saith the Lord sort of thing, then say, okay, we'll, we'll submit to where it's going about. You know, you don't go to war over the color of the chairs or the carpet, so to speak, or the organs or the guitars or that kind of thing. You say, well, let's try to work together <laughs> as a body of believers on the things that are not like uh, literally coming down on Sinai. So that brings us back to where we were looking at with Exodus chapter 2. And this one take that Moshe hey, was trying to use his own power to put God's promise into effect. But like Avraham, Yitzhak, Yaakov, and Yosef, you know, so too Moshe would have to learn to trust Adonai's lead in becoming the Sar, that's a part of the word Yisrael, because Yisrael is often translated um, rules with God or um, uh, struggles with God. So Sar is that key word that's in there, and that is basically one who either rules or struggles, works things out with God. So if you are working in that role of ruling with God on this, you need to learn how to be a ruler and also a part of that, who are you actually taking instructions from? You know, your own view of what God's promise is here or is it how his unfolding is actually going to go with this? So we see that Moshe does change, just like we saw in the last couple of uh, chapters of the book of Bereshit or Genesis. We see that Yehuda, that Judah changed. He was a different man when he came humbly before uh, what ended up to be his brother that he literally sold into slavery. So he literally is coming to him and saying, hey, Take me, take my life, do not take Binyamin. Because why? That would destroy my father. Well, what did he do years earlier? Destroyed his father, concocted a story about why Yosef is now missing. So it's like, see, what's the better story? I sold him into slavery or he got ripped apart by beasts. Uh, let's see, which, which, which one are we going to go with here? So they went with that one. He's dead. So now you see a quite different Yehuda show up. So thus, Moshe ends up going through also this transformation. And you see that from before, taking charge to make things happen to where you see in Exodus chapter 4, starting verse 10, he says, Then Moshe said to the Lord, Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past, nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. The Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth, or who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now then go, and I, even I, will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to say. But he said, Please, Lord, now send the message by whomever you will. And the anger of the Lord, and the anger of the Lord burned against Moshe, and he said, Is there not your brother Aharon the Levite? I know that he speaks fluently, and moreover he's coming to meet you. 
So, and we see later on that the Lord called him, called Aharon, hey, come meet him. So, uh, yes, uh, Danielle, you have a comment or a question there? Um, it kind of made me think like, uh, it kind of says before, like when he was younger, him and Ramsey like used to fight a lot. Him and his brother used to fight a lot. And like, mm. he talked a lot and like all that. Mm. So, um, I wonder like uh, during his journey, maybe um, something like clicked in his head and he was like, um, cause I'm pretty sure before, like maybe he like always talked a lot and all that. And then. Something clicked in his head. Well, and I mean, you, you think of how long he's had a time out here yeah. in the land of Midian. Yes, 40 years. If you think 40 years, you think about people that want to go um, collect their thoughts or find themselves, and they maybe go off maybe a sabbatical a year or so, but 40 years of a time out to go from prince of Egypt to shepherd shepherd in midian so you know again when you when you think of the geography here you know you're thinking of where he is in egypt so here he is in one of the most sophisticated built up civilized areas of the ancient world and midian is over here it's on the western shore of the saudi arabian peninsula the eastern shore of the gulf of aqaba here so the oh i don't have my red thing here yeah. oh bummer deal all right well so one of the the things that you see is the the gulf of aqaba so if you kind of see here's the gulf of aqaba here here's the gulf of suez and midian is on this shore here so it's on the eastern shore of the uh, Gulf of Aqaba today. So that is where Midian is. And so when you talk about uh, fleeing, he had to flee a long way because as you see in this particular map, um, which is roughly showing the ancient Egyptian empire. Now at this particular point, it's showing Egypt had pushed north all the way to almost modern-day Turkey. Well, the Hittite Empire and the Egyptian Empire kept fighting back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. So the Holy Land kept going back and forth between the Hittites and the Egyptians, back and forth. So when we see at the time of Abraham, when it talks about the sons of Het that were there in the land, those are remnants of the Hittites from the times when the Hittite Empire had pushed south and populated the area. Well, then the Egyptian Empire pushed north and took over the area again. So that you see at the time of uh, Yaakob, where they go and they make this journey up into Canaan, we don't know for sure, but probably that was a time period when Egypt had pushed north again and had taken the whole of the Holy Land back again. But Moshe fled out of the Egyptian Empire. So the Egyptian Empire had the whole, what we call the Sinai Peninsula today, but he couldn't be there so he had to flee out of that area because that was Egyptian controlled. They, we find ancient excavated sites of Egyptian forts all the way along the western shore of the Gulf of Aqaba. And there were mines, copper mines that were there as well. So there is a long established Egyptian presence all over what we call the Sinai Peninsula today. So he couldn't go there. 
for 40 years. So he went whoop, outside of Egyptian territory. So you've gone from being in the most civilized place to a backwater of the empire out there and working as a shepherd. So, uh, yes, uh, Larry, go ahead, please. The text actually talks about the fact that he learned all about how the Egyptian government worked because he was part of that from his, ah. his foster mother. And, but it doesn't say how he used that, but he must have used that information. Yeah, and because that, that you bring the very interesting question because when Moshe is saying, hey, I am slow of speech and not very eloquent, but you see that the, uh, when the deacon Stephan is talking to the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 7, what he said, and we read earlier, is Moshe was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians and he was a man of power in words and deeds. And you know, we've, we've seen in some other passages like 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 30, that King Shlomo was, says, hey, he's far wiser than the people down in Egypt. And we know from ancient Egyptian writings and such, there's a lot of wise people and high levels of learning, both in not only just in science of the time period, but also in mathematics of the time period, engineering of the time period, commerce of the time period libraries um when they talk about some of the learning areas they have uh, some of their kind of areas of learning that are up in modern day uh syria lebanon area is where they found those egyptian places of study up in that particular area so moshe would most likely have been the pharaoh's daughter's son have gone through some sort of instruction like that but perhaps what we see is a foreshadowing of the transformation that the Apostle Paul talks about. And you see like in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things um, to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ, Yeshua, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Messiah and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is, is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. In order that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So that's a good hint at the kind of transformation that has happened to each of the patriarchs. And as we see throughout time, as we see in the recountings of Moshe, how he went from being, you know, I am prince of Egypt, I will take out and deal with all injustices myself, to as he's described there at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, the humblest man that walks the face of the earth. So that friend of God. And Avram became called friend of God as well. So this kind of transformation to where Avraham, the father of faith, because as it said, he believed God, he trusted God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And that's a pivotal 
passage that goes throughout the New Testament and the apostolic writings, that transformation that goes on. Uh, yes, Alex, do uh, you have a comment or a question over there? You know, uh, Abraham and Moses both kind of knew how the big world worked. Mm. So maybe that was kind of a requirement. You're starting something from scratch. You need to know, you know, because uh, very tribal people don't have the bigger picture. But at the same time, David was a great king, but they were established, and, and yeah. you can be a lowly guy, or, or even the, some of the pharaohs came from humble means. Yes, they indeed. Go, they, they're living in a part of that world at the lowest state, and they go, I want his job. <laughs> and they do get it, and David did too. And the, and the question is going to be is, when you get that job, how do you approach your job? And as, as we see... There's a big difference, we talked about it earlier, between the two key pharaohs, the one that knew Yosef and then knew the God of heaven and earth, and the other one didn't know, didn't want to know, and fought against the God of heaven and earth. So that is kind of where we'll close things out here today, but as we start into this journey through the book of Shemot, this you know, kind of keep in the back of your mind that this is not only just a story of the people of God, not only a story about ancient people, but it's a story each one of us goes through in where we were in our house of bondage. And are we crying out for release? Are we crying out how long, how long until our deliverance, both from whatever we're facing right now or the ultimate fulfillment? You know, when are we crying out like you see at the end of the book of Revelation where it says, come, Lord Yeshua, come. You've been listening to a discussion at Hallel Fellowship. If you would like to hear more discussions or if you have any questions, visit the website at Hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. Halal.info.